From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. We remember the late Bill Withers with his debut single, Harlem, accompanying us. This week, our critics tell us about one of the most critically acclaimed films of the year, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, written and directed by Eliza Hittman. The movie wasn't released last month as scheduled due to COVID-19. It's now on video on demand. We'll also hear an interview with the director by The Frame's John Horn. And our critics look at some of the best films debuting on cable and satellite for this month of April. And we'll hear their picks for the best series available to stream. Yes, there is something beyond Tiger King on Netflix. It's Film Week on 89.3. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Three. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Our critics this week are Leah Lowenstein of the Santa Monica Daily Press, where she's film columnist, Peter Rayner for the Christian Science Monitor, and Christy Lemire from RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast. We're not only going to talk about new films that are available for you to watch at home, but also about some classic movies that are available, also what you can see in the way of series that stream. Yes, there is more than just uh, Tiger King, as exciting as that is, uh, on Netflix. Uh, we begin with Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. This is a film that was scheduled for release last month and then was held by the distributor because of the spread of COVID-19 and theater closings. The film is written and directed by Eliza Hittman. It stars Sidney Flanagan and Talia Ryder. It's rated PG-13. Christy, this has been one of the best-reviewed uh, films of the year. What did you think of it? It is excellent, and it is, it is one of the best films of the year. It will end up being one of the best films of the year. Um, what Eliza Hittman does so well is immerse us in the world of her young characters, and the story she's telling here could theoretically be quite polarizing, quite divisive, but there's no there's no judgment. It's about a 17-year-old girl who lives in rural Pennsylvania in the small kind of crumbling town. And she discovers that she's pregnant and she goes to a clinic in town where it's obvious to her very quickly that there are no choices available for her there. There is only one choice. And so she and her cousin with whom she works um, at the grocery store, the local grocery store, they save up some money, they steal a little bit of money and they buy bus tickets to go to New York city and they go to Planned Parenthood there. And it's about 
this journey of discovery and growing up in all the Liza Hitman's films, it felt like love and beach rats. It's about young people growing up and dramatic things happen, but it's within the haze of a kind of dreamy, intimate camera work. And, and it's, it's, you feel their emotions in a, a subtle way. She'll hold a shot on an actor for a long time and allow them to express what's going on internally without dialogue. You know, she really relies on, on her actors who are often unknowns to uh, express quite a great deal that's very emotional and internal and it's mesmerizing. We're talking about Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's available on video on demand. Peter, what did you think? Terrific movie, Larry. I think it, it may be the best uh, film I've seen, you know, that's opened this year. Um, it uh, it really, you know, it's funny because the, as Christy said, the, the two actresses, uh, Sidney Flanagan and Talia Ryder, are uh, essentially, you know, first-timers. Um, and yet uh, Eliza Hittman had the the grace and the insight to to focus the film so much on their their faces, which are remarkably expressive. Uh, I mean, they're both you know wonderful actresses, uh, and it, it, so much of the movie plays out uh, subliminally. The dialogue is very sparse. Uh, the 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 fear and the uh, uh, the vulnerability that they uh, express, you know, when, when they take the bus to New York and the experience they have in New York trying to navigate their way through this. This, this terrible maze of, of, of you know few choices is 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 really um, quite expressive and and there's there's one scene in particular where uh, um, Autumn uh, who's pregnant is is being interviewed in Planned Parenthood and she has to take a sort of a multiple choice questionnaire uh, with uh, an interviewer and in this scene um, a lot of stuff comes out about her past some some bad stuff. Their father and so forth, and it's it's an absolutely remarkable scene. Uh, it's it's, I think the best film I've seen so far this year. Wow! Never, rarely, sometimes, always is uh, on video on demand. It's rated PG thirteen. And later this hour, the frames John Horn interviews writer director Eliza Hitman. We'll be bringing you John's interview with her coming up later this hour on Film Week on KPCC. Also available to watch this week is Baccaro. Uh, uh, the film uh, stars Barbara Colen, a uh, Brazilian film. Uh, Peter, what did you think of this? Yeah, well, not to be confused with Cucuru. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Long gone chicken chain, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's, uh, this is one strange movie. Um, it starts out. It's in a, a the matriarch of a small Brazilian village um, has has died. Um, the granddaughter uh, of the matriarch, uh, played by Barbara Colon, shows up uh, in in what looks to be a somewhat uh, kind of a social socialist uh, utopian kind of. I mean, nobody has much of anything. It's a poor village, but they all sort of try to help each other out. At one point, a corrupt politician shows up, and he's you know hounded out of the village. It's it seems to be a kind of uh, fantasia of of a certain kind of uh, you know socialist utopia, um, it, but then strange things start to happen when during a, uh, a, a classroom uh, geography lesson. They notice that that the village is is no longer on Google Maps for some reason. It seems to have been off the map entirely. Um, and then uh, the second half of the film uh, turns a lot weirder. 
uh, in that um, uh, bunch of armed mercenaries uh, led by the uh, uh, famous Udo Kier, who's in a lot of uh, uh, strange movies, uh, shows up with a uh, contingent of uh, armed tourists to basically pick off the people in the village uh, for uh, for sport. It's a little bit like uh, the most dangerous game scenario, and it's also weirdly uh, a bit like the movie The Hunt, which some of you may recall from a number of weeks back. This was supposed to open theatrically the same day uh, that that well, I think it did, but it didn't get much release. Um, so I guess it's in the air these kind of. Uh, scenarios. Um, the second half is a little bit like Mad Max. There's a a, a, a weird a, a, a thing that keeps happening with a kind of UFO-shaped drone that's flying over the village. And at first I thought it was a UFO, and then it's just part of this, you know, tourist uh, uh, armed armada business. But it, it's I, it, this movie gets a lot of points for being strange, um, and Sonia Braga is is all out as an alcoholic doctor of the village, and um, you know there's a lot of interesting things going on in this movie. But to characterize it as any one kind of film, forget it. And Sonia Braga should be in every Brazilian film, right? That should just be a, a national law. Right. Then. All right. We're talking with uh, Peter Rayner, our Film Week critic. We're reviewing the Brazilian uh, film Bacuro. Uh, also, uh, seeing as Christy, what did you think? I'm sitting here on the other end of the line trying not to laugh audibly, listening to Peter describing Bacurau because it's such a trippy movie. and he, he, he described it so beautifully. It's really unsettling from the very beginning. And Yes, you are in this small village, but your sense of time is really skewed. We are told that it takes place in the near future, but there are these very old world kind of rituals and ways in which the characters relate to each other and how they live their daily lives. It feels very ancient. And yet there is such immediacy from one moment to the next that you feel like you are in the absolute present. And we see a lot of movies, as all you listeners know, um, and you feel like you can sometimes predict where this film's going to go, you never know where this movie is going. It is dreamlike for a long time, and then it just becomes stunningly graphically violent. And you're laughing at moments that maybe you shouldn't be. I don't know. It's really vivid and really odd and just unlike anything else. And one cool thing is that you can stream it through Kino Lorber's Kino Marquee. So if you go to their website, you can pick a local independent theater to get some of the the benefit from you purchasing this online. Yeah, so, Lemley's and the Alamo Draft House are a couple of those uh, local uh, independent theaters you're mentioning that you can stream it through their websites. Uh, yes, very cool. Center. Support support our local theaters as best we can. Yeah, absolutely. The winner of the grand jury, uh, or sorry, the uh, jury prize, I guess it's called, at Cannes from 2019, uh, uh The film uh, is, again, available in virtual cinemas. Also out this week, Slay the Dragon, a documentary which is on video on demand, including iTunes, uh, the film directed by Chris Durrance and Barack Goodman. Christy. Documentary about gerrymandering, which would not seem like an inherently cinematic topic. It would seem kind of dry, but this film is absolutely infuriating and it is must-see viewing any year 
but especially as we are in a really important election year, as we are now, even though everything is, you know, turned upside down, there's still an election coming. So it is about how kind of secret behind the scenes political forces have been in place all over the country to redraw district maps, both on a, a national and a local, you know, statewide scale to benefit people who are already in office and to choke out little pockets of, of cities and towns where there might be minority voters um, who could upend things. So like Asheville, North Carolina, for example, is a very liberal enclave within a, you know, a red state. And it's about how places like that, you know, the lines get redrawn to swallow up towns like that so that people's votes just don't count. And um, they focus on a few different states in particular. Wisconsin is one where um, their case to fight gerrymandering went all the way to the Supreme Court. You see a lot of the, the protests that took place at the Wisconsin State House over the past several years. Also, Michigan, a grassroots effort in Michigan. One young woman just posted on Facebook, hey, I don't like the way you know voting looks with gerrymandering. Who wants to help me? And she got this massive effort behind her. And so there, there's hope in it in that people are aware of this problem and they're banding together to try to fight it. Um, but there's just so much money on the other side. And the film takes its title from the fact that these districts get drawn in such a way that they are so convoluted that they end up looking like mythical creatures. And so they'll go from one state to the next and show you this one looks like a dragon. This one looks like an octopus. This one looks like Goofy and Daffy Duck. And uh, it's it's really informative and also very infuriating. Slay the Dragon, the documentary from Chris Durrance and uh, Barack Goodman. Peter, what do you think? It's a terrific film. And, and um, you know, I was a little wary going into it that it was going to be really wonky, uh, which it sort of is. But it, it, it also is extremely well edited uh, with a lot of very interesting and informative graphics and uh and and it's it's even handed i mean it doesn't make you know it doesn't say that that only republicans have been doing this uh it's been equally employed by democrats it's just that um what the film focuses on is is the republican redistricting that happened you know following obama's first election and and the 2010 census and uh and it really is quite infuriating that um you know that so many you know that that uh uh you can have a, a a district that that's essentially in this case going you know strongly for democrats that that district by district returns through gerrymandering ends up republican um and the the people on the front lines who are uh, portrayed in this film are you know fighting a a a just cause i believe they um i i wish the film had uh, brought up a little more about the citizens united decision um there are a lot of uh, very interesting talking heads. David Daly, uh, who wrote a book with a, a title that can't be mentioned on the air about gerrymandering, is, is particularly eloquent in the film. Um, and uh, I guess I also learned peripherally that uh, the name comes from the Massachusetts governor in 1812, uh, whose last name was Gary. So I guess technically it should be Gary, Gary Man. That's, that's been among really wonky political folks, an ongoing debate as it really should be Gary Mandering, but of course no one 
toss it that, yeah. All right, uh, Peter, thanks so much. Slay the Dragon, available on video on demand, including iTunes. The documentary from Chris Durrance and Barack Goodman is rated PG-13. As we continue on Film Week, uh, other new movies this week include About a Teacher. It's a drama that's streaming on Amazon Prime. We'll hear about the Disney Plus documentary Dolphin Reef and the documentary also on Disney Plus Elephant. It's just the new way we bring you Film Week these days. It's what you can see at home via streaming services, video on demand, cable movie channels, and much more. And we're also going to get into what some of those picks are of classic films and favorite television series from our critics as well. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Back in a minute. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Matzel. I want to take a moment to thank our Film Week and AirTalk team for transitioning to our critics coming onto the show uh, from their homes, of course, as part of the precautions around COVID-19. And sometimes that doesn't go totally smoothly. We hope you don't hear that all the time, but my appreciations to the hard work everybody's doing uh, to try and make that happen. And uh, it just had uh, one of those embarrassing things for me fall through the cracks. And uh, But, you know, it's, um, it's radio, and we, uh, we're learning, all of us, as we go, working under new circumstances. We continue with this week's new releases, what you can see on video on demand or from streaming services and the like, about a teacher, a drama that stars uh, Dove uh, Tiefenbach. Uh, Hannon Harkole is the writer-director of the film. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. And, Peter, what do you think of about a teacher? Teacher, uh, I really liked it, Larry. It's um, it's a first feature by uh, Hannon uh, Harkol, who's who's a real teacher. Uh, this is a sort of semi-autobiographical uh, movie about his experiences as a teacher. Uh, he, he it's it's an acted drama. Uh, Dove Tiefenbach uh, plays him. Uh, he's actually called by uh, Harkol's name in the film, um, and uh, it takes off from the idea that uh, almost fifty percent of teachers in New York City. Um, uh, quit within five years because of the, uh, the the pressures and the difficulties, and it's more than that. The attrition rate is is it's much more than that in inner city schools than in the more affluent schools. So it's a crisis, and uh, um, it follows um, uh, Hanan through a fi- uh, three years of teaching. His first year is. Uh, doesn't go particularly well. He he thinks he knows more than everyone else does. Uh, he's not arrogant. He's just sort of feels he's he knows what he's doing, and he really doesn't. And the students uh, take advantage of him, and the principal and so forth, you know, bear down on him. And but throughout it all, um, I, I've rarely seen a movie about teachers and students that was this realistic. Uh, usually, you know, movies about high schools, particularly just don't seem at all like the way we experience them. You know, they're, they're stagy and stiff, and people don't speak that way. And, and the actors look like adults. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or Sean Penn. Um, <laughs> but uh, in this case, um, he actually, uh, Harkel used 
um, as, as director, used some of the students that he had taught uh, in the film. And, I mean, they really, they are so natural. Uh, I, I don't mean, you know, sort of fake natural, uh, the way you see sometimes, you know, methody. I mean, it's just, I don't quite know how he did it. And this is his first feature. And uh, Dove Tiefenbach is, is, is very good. He's he re- reminiscent in some ways of, of early, early Woody Allen and, and Gene Wilder. There are even some intonations from early Spike Lee. But, but he's, he's his own actor. And uh, it, it really is a, a gratifying movie, you know, not only because of what it's saying about sticking with it and, and, and bonding with your students and learning from them, but, you know, just also in, in, in the very realistic way that it shows what these lives are like. And, and it just doesn't seem phony at all. Well, wow, sounds great. About a teacher. Lael, what did you think? Um, I liked it. Not quite as much as, as Peter did, but um, I agree. You know, the the kind of inspirational teacher movie is a genre that's been almost kind of done to death between, you know, Dead Poet Society and Goodbye, Mr. Chips and Mr. Holland's Opus and movies like that. It's um, don't forget up the down staircase. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but uh, this this is a puts a, a different spin on it, and and largely, as Peter pointed out, that is because so many of the um, characters in the film were actually real students of of Hanan Harkel. Interestingly. Um, the actor who plays him doesn't look much like the the actual Hanan Harkole. He looks he's kind of much more sort of nebbishy and and uh, you know just really is more of a Woody Allen type. Where you see at the very end of the film, you see some photos involving um, the actual Hanan Harkole, who's who's a sort of more Hollywood looking type. Um, so this is kind of an interesting choice to go with that. Um, But in terms of what it says about public school education and the difficulties that teachers face, that was felt very authentic and very real and um, and and very naturalistic. I think many of the conversations must have been either improvised or um, the dialogue worked from actual situations. Um, And the fact is, he's he's a film teacher and he teaches these kids to find a voice, to find to use the cameras that they have to find their own voice and to tell their own stories. And that was that was really quite inspiring. About a Teacher, the drama that's streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, Anand Harkol is the writer-director, and Dove Tiefenbach is the star. It's unrated. Dolphin Reef, a Disney Plus documentary. Keith uh, Scully is the director. Christy. So every year around Earth Day, Disney Nature puts out these documentaries. And so this year we actually are getting two and they're coming out a little bit early and they're coming out through streaming because this is the world in which we live now. So the first of these is called Dolphin Reef. And if you have seen any of these previous films, there's so many of them, Chimpanzee, Monkey Kingdom, it's it's every year for like the past decade plus they've done them. You know that the cinematography is just spectacularly beautiful. And you've got to make sure you stick around through the credits. Don't get up and go to the kitchen because um, what they do during the credits is show behind the scenes how they got a lot of those shots because you will wonder over and over again because it is so intimate and it is so vivid. You'll wonder how did they get that shot. So the first of the two we're going to talk about today is called Dolphin Reef. It is narrated by Natalie Portman. It's about this young dolphin 
in the South Pacific who is growing up and learning about his surroundings and what are predators and how does his mom protect him and how does he find food and how do all the other creatures in the reef interact with each other. Within all of these films, there is an environmental element. There is a message of conservation because, of course, the beautiful images that we're seeing are increasingly in in peril and we need to work to protect them. Um, what happens quite often with these films, and it is the case with this, and especially in the next one we're going to talk about, there's kind of a cutesy anthropomorphism that goes on. And so, you know, the main animal who is our, you know, protagonist gets a name and a backstory. And sometimes the story is edited in a way that suggests a narrative that perhaps isn't really happening in real life, um, but they want to appeal to the broadest possible audience. And that often means little kids, you know, and this is, this is an excellent way to spend time at home with your family watching a movie like this, where it is truly transporting. You feel like you have gone to another planet. It is so ridiculously beautiful under the water, the creatures, the reef, the coral, the colors. So this is a, this is a good one. Of the two we're talking about, this is the good one. Dolphin Reef, it's narrated by Natalie Portman. Uh, it's rated G on Disney+. Plus. Leo, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Christy. The, I have the same objections. The cutesy anthropomorphism is a little bit kind of annoying, but it's really the whole spoonful of sugar philosophy that, you know, let's make it fun for the little ones. And we're not really the intended demographic as much as our kids are. Um, so that, that it didn't bother me that much, but, you know, sometimes you feel, you can feel it in the, in the way Natalie Portman's voiceover is directed to, you know, take on a, 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 a cute voice or, or a, a scary tone or something like that. Um, and, you know, to the extent that it do, it will educate young people about, you know, preserving the coral reef and um, and how incredibly diverse um, the underwater ecosystem is, that that is important. And it's beautifully shot and it's fascinating to watch. I also love just at the, at the very end of this film, as with the other one that we're going to discuss, there's there's a little bit, just a teeny bit of documentary footage of how they actually shot the the film itself, and um, and that's really interesting to me to see how they how they managed to get this incredible footage. Dolphin Reef rated G. Also, as Christy mentioned, there's another Disney Plus uh, animal documentary, Elephant. Mark Linfield, the director of that, and Meghan Markle is the narrator. Leo, what do you think of Elephant? Yeah, I I think I maybe liked it a little better than Christy. Um, I I Mark Linfield also did Chimpanzee. He did um, Monkey Kingdom, and so he's got a lot of experience getting these uh, um, kind of fascinating animals um, in their natural habitat and filming them, making it seem like he's really really close to them. Um, the elephants, not unlike the dolphins and dolphin reef, are fully anthropomorphized in that there is a, a storyline that's that's told. In this case, it actually does seem to be a, a real storyline. They have to, um, when their water supply every year dries up in this um, in this delta area, they have to go on an extremely long trek to find water. And in the course of that. There is uh, danger in the in the uh, in the way of lions and and other predators. There's even the mud that they'll they'll be playing around in can turn into a source of danger when one of the little elephants gets caught in the mud. And and it was really 
um, it was fascinating to me to see the way things get worked out in the elephant world. You know, like um, it's a very highly, highly matriarchal um, species. And uh, the, the, in fact, the male elephants are sort of not even really there after they're after they grow up. Um, and I thought it was really interesting the way that's all worked out. I would have liked maybe a little bit less narration and a little bit more just observation. All right. Uh, Elephant is the film. Christy, like one line on it? Yes. Um, it is very, very beautiful. There's a sort of interesting, like Danny Boyle style, fast paced montage sequence that happens over and over again to show you the passage of time and distance. Um, Meghan Markle's narration was so schmaltzy and cloying. I could barely stand it, but the images are stunning. Elephant rated G, Disney Plus, once again, the streaming service that has it. Well, let's talk about some of our uh, critics' choices uh, for films that are on streaming services, that uh, are on cable channels and the like. Peter, let me start with you to talk about um, some Turner Classic Movies films that you want to highlight. They're also available on TCM's app. Uh, Which ones stand out to you? Uh, well, the the player, um, I believe, is is the one that really you know stands out for me. Um, I love I love the player. We actually filmed it for uh, I mean showed it for one of our film series. Just such a great really? Robert Altman movie. Yeah, we little series that we did. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean it's you know it was it was sort of Robert Altman's love love hate letter to Hollywood. Uh, and also something of a comeback for him, at least, you know, in, in the popular imagination. He'd made a lot of films that people hadn't seen, you know, widely. But, uh, but you know, Tim Robbins is this executive who, uh, you know, murders a screenwriter and, and, uh, and doesn't pay the price. Um, and I, I thought it was just the most macabre and, 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 and also eloquent movie about the state of movies at that time. <laughs> yeah, it was... Pretty pretty dark and and funny. Also, uh, Kubrick's Lolita is screening on TCM. Yeah, this was uh, a Kubrick movie that uh, was made after Spartacus and before Doctor Strangelove. Uh, it's it's I think the most original comedy of the 1960s. Uh, of course, based on the uh, Nabokov novel, he actually wrote the screenplay for it, which was uh, rejiggered by by Kubrick, though he gets screen credit. Peter Sellers gives a classic. Uh, uh, you know, black comic performance. James Mason is extraordinary. Shelley Winters, Sue Lyon. It's just an amazing movie. It's it's unlike any other film uh, comedy. It, it it's it's a precursor of so much of what came after, uh, in terms of how it mixes tones and and you know dark and light and weirdness. It's just an amazing film. Uh, also, Lust for Life, uh, the Kirk Douglas starring film as Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, this is, you know, of course, uh, Kirk Douglas passed recently, and um, this is one of his finest performances. Uh, I, I know that, that bio, how big Hollywood biopics about artists tend to be kind of conventional and, and, and sappy. This one isn't. It's a, it's a really strong performance uh, as Van Gogh by, by Kirk Douglas, and Anthony Quinn is Gauguin, and uh, it, it, it's really, you know, the, the visuals are so alive, too, which you would expect from a film about Van Gogh. Uh, and I just wanted to clarify that Criterion Channel is where you can see the player, the yeah. Robert Altman film, Turner Classic Movies, Lust for Life, and Lolita also on their app. And we should briefly mention, like 30 seconds, Shout Factory TV has the Johnny Carson show episodes, some of the real early ones. Yeah, they have, you know, the, the animal stuff with Joan Embry. And, uh, but my favorite are the Karnak. You know, I just 
Johnny Carson as Karnak is the, the the height of comedy for me. You know the you know he they say sis boom ba and and so he divines the answers. The question is. What is what does a sheep sound like when it explodes? <laughs> we'll continue on Film Week with our critics. That's Peter Rayner, Leo Lowenstein, Christy Lemire with us as well. Uh, we'll hear some of the uh, picks as well by Christy and uh, Leo as we continue. And then we have a special interview from The Frame's John Horn of uh, the acclaimed film that's out this week on Video On Demand. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Like seemingly everybody else in the semi-civilized world, I'm well into Tiger King, the documentary series on Netflix. Just absolutely astonishing. It was recommended by our critics last week, seven episodes in the documentary about uh, several different owners of um, wild animal parks and their eccentricities, to put it mildly, and worse. Um, But we have a a number of other Netflix series that are going to be recommended by our Film Week critics joining us this week, as well as streaming on other platforms. Leo, what are some of your Netflix faves? Well, um, The Crown is uh, one that I came to a little bit late, and it's only uh, halfway through its I think intended six season run, but um, it's excellent. You don't have to be a royalist or uh, a fan of the royals to in, to appreciate Olivia Coleman's portrait of middle-aged Queen Elizabeth or Claire Foy's performance as young Queen Elizabeth. And it Peter Morgan, who um, has made something of a specialty of writing about um, powerful people and the wages of power. Uh, he did Frost Nixon. He did the Queen. Um, he has he has written and created this show has such a a, a really um, remarkable grasp for character and um, conundrum and he makes things that seem like they wouldn't be relatable highly highly relatable and it's just it's expertly written and beautifully acted and then I also want to just point out that Olivia Coleman's also uh, in a Netflix series that I sort of discovered accidentally called Broadchurch. Um, which uh, is a detective series. It starts, it's a mystery thriller. It starts out uh, in a fictional town in, um, on the coast of, of England, the southern coast, and um, a mystery is, has to be solved over the course of three seasons. And uh, the first season is far better than the succeeding two, but David Tennant, who played Doctor Who, is a wonderful Scottish actor. He's also in it as well. And Olivia Coleman is just um, absolutely tremendous. So those are two two of my favorites. Great, great. And I know you're a crazy ex-girlfriend fan. That's available on multiple streamers, but yeah. you, you love that sitcom. Yes, that's a good one. All right. Uh, with That includes music as as uh, well. Um, so uh, those are some of your recommendations. Christy, what are some of your picks uh, on Netflix or other streaming services? So on Netflix, um, if you, we talked about the nature documentaries earlier, but they have a series called Our Planet, which is narrated by David Attenborough. And it's all the spectacular, gorgeous imagery from these, you know, family-friendly Disney nature films, but even more intense and more heightened and really for a 
a little more grown-up crowd. So we've been watching those at night to avoid watching the news, and it's sort of a joy to feel transported and also to learn something. Um, HBO recently has announced something pretty cool, which is that they are making 500 hours of programming available for free, whether you are a subscriber to HBO or not, through cable or through the HBO Go app. And that includes entire series runs of Veep, The Wire, The Sopranos, Succession. So if you have always meant to catch up on one of these shows that your friends have always told you, oh, you got to watch The Wire, yeah. now is your chance. Um, we also watched a lot of Bob's Burgers in my house. I've got a 10-year-old son, and he loves that show. And that is a brilliantly smart and sweet program that is animated, but it works for every kind of age of audience member. And uh, we also enjoy for some escapist fun, the house flipping shows on HGTV. <laughs> we like love it or list it. And we like flip or flop. We get very emotionally invested in what kind of backsplash are they going to pick for the kitchen. And that's a nice escape to have from the realities of today. You also wanted to mention the late Fountains of Wayne singer-songwriter Adam uh, Schlesinger, uh, who contributed music, I think, to Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, if I'm not mistaken. Indeed. um, But that thing you do, didn't he do the title song for that? He did. And before Fountains of Wayne even became a a well-known band, um, he wrote the song, That Thing You Do. And what he did so well with that and with some of the songs from the film Music and Lyrics and from a lot of the film and TV work he has done, including Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is he had this tremendous ear for creating a sound from a certain era without having it devolve into parody. And he would create these songs that really stand on their own. So the the thing with that thing you do is that it has to be a song that belongs in that era, that is believable, but that you enjoy so much that you don't mind hearing it over and over and over again in pieces or as, as a whole. He was a brilliant songwriter. All those Fountains of Wayne songs are so catchy uh, and they really blend like old school rock and roll with pop and some punk sensibilities, some new wave sensibilities. And uh, yeah, 52, he was very young. He died of of coronavirus. So you can watch That Thing You Do or Music and Lyrics on various places, including Google Play, Hulu, Vudu, iTunes. I also want to mention one of your films. We're getting short on time, but uh, I know you really were a huge fan of this. Tom Hardy starred in Locke. It came out, I don't know, seven years ago or something. But it's a guy alone in his car on the phone. Uh, and I know, I don't, and you weren't alone. A lot of our critics really like that film. <laughs> I love Locke. And I think if we're all going to be stuck at home, let's lean into this whole isolation I thing. Say, I don't know about the timing, but, but I no, know you, you know love what? the film. You know what? I do because I feel like you're alone. They're alone. We're not alone if we're all alone together. And so it's, it's, it's a brilliant showcase for Tom Hardy. He is alone in a car for 90 minutes driving from one place to another, taking a bunch of phone calls, and you learn so much about who he is and what he does and why he is driving and where he's going. Um, He was really alone in the car, and the other actors who are calling into him were all in a conference room dialing into his Bluetooth phone, (laughs) one of whom, one of whom, Lael, was Olivia Coleman. 
Wow. So right? I sense a theme, though, with you, Christy, because you also picked Moon from 2009, Sam Rockwell, Alone on the Dark Side of the Moon. So you're really leaning into isolation with, with those. Also want to mention, uh, Leo, real quickly, you want to point out Amazon Prime has a ton of the Bond movies that are out this month. Some of the highlights? Yes. Um, well, they've got a lot of the really good ones, including Goldfinger and Dr. No, some of the originals. None of the new Daniel Craig ones. Okay. Some of the absolute classics. And, um, you know, we were supposed to have a Bond movie come out now, so we're not having it until later, but might as well start a Bond fest. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much to our Film Week critics this week, Leo Lowenstein, Peter Rayner, and Christy Lemire. Coming up, it's John Horn of The Frame interviewing writer-director Eliza Hitman of the acclaimed film Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which opens on video and demand this weekend. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. One of the most critically acclaimed films of the year, never, rarely, sometimes, always, hasn't been released yet. Until this weekend, it's now out on digital. It was delayed because of COVID-19. The Frame's John Horn interviewed writer-director Eliza Hitman. Uh, The film tells the story of two teenage girls from rural Pennsylvania who go to New York City seeking help for an unplanned pregnancy. John Horn talked with Hitman at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year and asked her what inspired her to write it. I first had the seed for the idea for the film in 2012, and I was editing my first feature, which premiered here, called It Felt Like Love. And I think it was October, and I was reading the news, and a woman named Savita Halepanaver died in a hospital in Galway um, after being denied a life-saving abortion. And it, you know, really stunned and devastated me, and I started thinking about how far she would have had to travel to save her own life. And I went out and bought a book, and I started doing some reading, and I bought a book called Ireland's Hidden Diaspora, and was reading about women who would travel from Ireland to London and back in 24 hours to get an abortion. And I thought, oh, there's a movie in there. And it's important to note that Ireland, until very very recently, recently had incredibly restrictive abortion rules. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, overturned last year. So Ireland is not where this story is set? It's not. But in 20, you know, 2012, 2013, I wrote two treatments for a film that explored this untold journey. And one took place in Ireland. And then I asked myself, what is the U.S. equivalent of this journey? And of course, you know, women take this journey all over the world. So it wasn't hard to, you know, begin to research and explore, you know, what it's like to go from a rural area in this country to an urban area. I want to ask you about writing your lead character, Autumn, Mm -hmm. who is 17 in the film, correct? Correct. She lives in rural Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. To, you know, some people's minds, she wouldn't be highly educated. She doesn't Mm -hmm. have access to a lot of things that people with means and education might have in a big city. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, she is a little bit disenfranchised Mm -hmm. when the story begins. Mm -hmm. And that 
is an important part of the story, isn't it? Correct. So what is she facing beyond what she's facing, which is that she's pregnant with a child she doesn't want to have? Mm -hmm. What are the other obstacles she faces in terms of access to information or healthcare uh-huh. or well, anything? Well, part of the, the research for the film, and there was an, an extensive amount of research done. And when I say research, I don't mean compiling information or statistics. I mean me going out into the world to get as best an understanding for what her circumstance would be. So uh, my partner and I, who edited the film, who's very entrenched in everything I do, Scott Cummings, we drove, you know, two or three hours outside of the city and watched the landscape change and saw how quickly the world changed by going into a small coal coal mining region of Pennsylvania. And I went to local pregnancy centers and I took pregnancy tests. And I tried to have conversations with the women who worked there and went through their counseling sessions and wanted to create as much of an authentic depiction of what a center in a small town would be like so that I could write those scenes with credibility. Are you pregnant at the time? Not pregnant, but they do the counseling session while the test is processing. So let's talk about these counseling sessions. Yes. Because depending on where you go, and it may not be clear from the sign out front, yeah. you could be walking into a place that might be, say, more aligned with the ideology of Planned Parenthood, uh-huh. or, or you could be walking and into a place that's no more aligned with Operation Rescue. And there's no way to know if you Rescue. were young and vulnerable, or if you were vulnerable. There was, there's no way to know the difference. And yet, if you go into the latter, if you go into a clinic that is anti-abortion, something might happen. Mm -hmm. And it happens in your film, and that is you're given two pieces of information. Mm -hmm. One is bad information Mm -hmm. about how far along you are. And the second piece of information is going to be information trying to persuade you not to have an abortion. Correct. Is that something that was part of your research? Yes. And the conversation was skewed towards adoption. Um, and you know, you're, you're meeting with somebody who is dressed in medical scrubs, but have no, you know, license to practice. So, you know, I went to a range of them, you know, I went to multiple centers to just have, you know, the best understanding. They're all a little bit different. Um, and the experience was a little bit different in each of them, but they are laymen individuals giving information and performing ultrasounds. We're talking with Eliza Hittman about her film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. When people go to the doctors, they're Mm -hmm. often given binary questions, yes, Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever had this? Mm -hmm. Do you suffer from that? Mm -hmm. But there's a sequence in this film Mm -hmm. that involves a series of questions where the choices to the answer are never, rarely, Mm -hmm. sometimes, always. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you encountered in your research or where did that phrase come from? Yes, it did. It's actually on the form that they give out at Planned Parenthood. Um, And when I was talking with counselors, you know, I tried to play out scenarios. What would happen if a minor came in? You know, what would your concerns be? You know, what would be the most important things that you would want to discuss? discover about them in the, you know, 20 minutes before they have their abortion. And they, you know, they really stressed that they wanted to do this interpersonal violence counseling to understand, 
you know, the circumstances surrounding the pregnancy and to make sure that people understand, you know, that they're entitled to a healthy relationship. Um, And they found that in being binary and asking yes or no, it didn't create a platform to open up a dialogue. And so they, they use what's called the Likert scale. And when I did this interview, I recorded it. And she said, you know, never, rarely, sometimes, always. And she went through the questions on the sheet with me. And there was something, you know, very lyrical and poetic about listening to this counselor repeat these questions to me. Um, and, you know, the possible answers. But that's really the beginning. And it's meant to open up a conversation. Autumn, when she goes on the road trying to find a place she can get an abortion, doesn't go by herself. She goes with a friend, a cousin, Mm -hmm. right, named Skylar. Mm -hmm. And this movie is really also about female friendship Mm -hmm. and female friendship when there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And it's a very understated friendship Mm -hmm. about what is shared, Mm -hmm. who is thankful, how friendship is appreciated, and... In thinking about that and how you research teen friendship Mm -hmm. in those extraordinary circumstances, how did you approach telling that part of the story? You know, for me, I have memories of a lot of quiet or a a few in my past quiet subway rides with friends when I was a youth going to, you know, Planned Parenthood in Manhattan and just always remembered you kind of don't talk about the elephant, This is when you were going to get birth control or going with friends who were having abortions? Both. You know, someone's panicked they have an STD, you know, when I was a teenager. So you've been thinking about this movie well before you started thinking about Ireland. No, I just thought thought about, you know, the elephants in the room and keeping somebody company along the way. And, you know, that was really my approach to exploring them. And I didn't want Skylar's character to be this like precocious, you know, hero. They're just two young people navigating a world with all these invisible obstacles. And it was about them being together more than her having every right answer. What can a narrative film say about a subject like this that a documentary can't? Um, Well, I think, you know, in documentaries, it's very rare to find women who want to talk about that experience. Um, And, you know, I was also really inspired by this documentary that was here in 2013 called After Tiller. That's about, you know, the the sort of last late term abortion doctors who are practicing in this country. We should say George Tiller was a American obstetrician who was murdered in 2009. Correct. And one thing that struck me was how faceless, it's a phenomenal documentary, but also none of the women in the situation wanted to have their faces on screen. So for me, I think um, because of the shame, I think it's hard to get documentary subjects to come forward about what their experiences are. Um, And to me, the film puts a face to the subjects. The Frame's John Horn interviewing Eliza Hitman, writer-director of Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, Now, Out on Digital. We thank you for joining us for another film week here on 89.3 KPCC. You can hear us every Friday at 11 and Saturday at noon right here on 89.3 KPCC. Back with you Monday at 10 for Air Talk. <laughs>